In the last days of summer on Maine's Penobscot River, tea-colored water hides an ancient ritual unfolding just under the surface. Against all odds, hundreds of the river's wild Atlantic salmon have returned from the sea. They're pushing upstream on the home stretch of a 4,000-mile round trip between Maine and Greenland, getting ready to spawn on the very patch of gravel they hatched from years ago. Over a lifetime that can stretch more than two decades, wild Atlantic salmon undergo a remarkable transformation from a pea-sized egg buried in the bed of a freshwater stream to a three-foot-long ocean predator making dives into the abyss of the North Atlantic. Join us over the next three episodes as we explore the world of wild Atlantic salmon. From their life history, to the deep connections between salmon and people, to the international fight to make a better future for this king of fish. I'm Caroline Losnick. And I'm Charlie Schmidt. You're listening to the Saving Salmon Podcast, Episode 1, The Leaper. When most Americans think of Atlantic salmon, they picture the local supermarket. Americans consume about 400,000 tons of Atlantic salmon every year, but not a single pound comes from the wild. Atlantic salmon in grocery stores are all farmed. They're bred, fed, and medicated to grow fat fast. Farmed Atlantic salmon also look and taste different than their wild counterparts, which throughout history have been admired for their awe-inspiring navigation skills and ability to leap over waterfalls to reach their spawning grounds. This remarkable fish still exists in more than 2,000 rivers in countries on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, but in the United States, they're on the endangered species list, hanging tough in a handful of Maine rivers. One of the things that I've heard kids say is like, I never thought about salmon except what was on my plate or what I ate. And now they're recognizing, wait a second, these are Atlantic salmon and they're endangered, so we can't eat those. Hazel Stark stands on the banks of the Narraguegas River, where it runs through the town of Cherryfield, Maine. She's the main base coordinator for an educational program called Fish Friends, run by the Maine Council of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Every year, a special delivery is made to participating classrooms, 200 Atlantic salmon eggs sprinkled among gravel stones in an aquarium. For a few months each winter and spring, children get to watch as the bright orange eggs become tiny fish. For Stark, the program is a hands-on opportunity for Maine kids to learn about how salmon live in the wild. Most years, most schools release, I would say, 180 of those 200 eggs. Some of them actually release all 200. They all survive. And oftentimes, kids are really disappointed when, you know, a fish or two die. But it's always really important to tell them that in the wild, the survival rates are nil. It's like one in 100 to one in 1,000 that might actually survive from a, a given batch. A four-year-old female salmon in the wild might lay 8,000 eggs or more. She uses her powerful tail and body to dig nests up to a foot deep. Males nearby battle for the chance to fertilize the eggs with a sperm-containing fluid called milt. Spawning takes place in the fall, and once the fertilized eggs are covered back over by the female, Mother Nature starts her timer. 
And then their development is entirely temperature related. So as the temperature in the stream increases throughout the winter and spring, that is what cues the eggs to develop. And so they will develop from those eyed eggs into little alevins. So at that point, they've sprouted a little tail, but they still have a big tummy. That's their yolk sac that they're able to feed themselves off of. So they're still kind of hanging out at the bottom, not really moving a lot. They kind of like jiggle and vibrate a little bit um, and they don't need to go find food because their yolk sacs are allowing them to feed themselves. It takes about four months to go from a fertilized egg to an elven that still carries its yolk sac and another month before the nutrients in the yolk sac are used up. After that, the tiny juvenile salmon wriggle out of their gravel nest into the dangerous underwater world beyond. They're now called fry, the next stage in their life cycle. Barely an inch from tip to tail, fry are vulnerable to predators and extremes like floods and heat waves. Most of the time, they're gorging themselves so they can evade threats by getting bigger. During the next stage in their life cycle, when they're called par, salmon start showing some of the traits that help them succeed as adults. They're camouflaged to blend with their surroundings and will hide out next to a single rock in their home stream, darting out to grab insects and other food floating by. A par in Maine will grow as large as eight inches as it prepares for an incredible transformation. Inside the Craigbrook National Fish Hatchery near Bangor, Maine, biologist Denise Buckley oversees a complex program for collecting and breeding Maine Atlantic salmon. Yeah, so where I'm walking is, we call this our broodstock hallway. There's one room for each uh, of six rivers. Despite the daily pressures of caring for one of the country's most endangered fish, she still finds humor and wonder in the job. Some of that complexity, I sort of like that. It's fun. Atlantic salmon, you know, have to have all these crazy terms for every period of their life history. From eggs to eyed eggs, from elven to fry to par, only about 50 salmon live long enough to reach the next life stage, a smolt. Here's Denise Buckley. If they've survived winter, they're going to go through a process that's called smoltification which allows their bodies to adapt from freshwater to saltwater. Of the more than 30,000 known fish species in the world, just 250 or so have the ability to move between fresh and saltwater. And that puts Atlantic salmon in rare company. At first, young salmon swim upstream to remain in the pools and eddies of their home rivers. But then things change. Here's Buckley. For the first time in its life, a salmon is going to stop swimming against the current. It's going to turn around and he's going to swim with the current because he knows that that downstream current is going to carry him out to the estuary and out to the ocean. As the salmon move downstream, gills and organs are altered for life in salt water. The dark bars and red dots that hid them from the birds and big fish fade away, replaced by bright silver scales. Their body narrows and lengthens for the long-distance swim ahead, and the smell of their home river is imprinted to memory. Smolt join up with other juvenile and adult salmon from different rivers and move in pulses out to the North Atlantic. Some stop once they reach the Labrador Sea. Others continue to the west coast of Greenland. Why do they go to Greenland? What, 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 what draws them there? That's one of the mysteries. I don't know why they go there. Isn't that an amazing life history choice? to migrate thousands of miles away to where the food source is. Off the west coast of Greenland, scientists with the Atlantic Salmon Federation and the U.S. federal government are trying to figure this out, 
by catching adult salmon and fitting them with satellite tags, part of a new multi-year study of the fish's behavior during winter months and the journey back home. My name is Tim Sheehan, and I'm a research fishery biologist with NOAA Fisheries Service based out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Sheehan is helping to lead the latest tagging study. He's been working on salmon in Greenland for years, analyzing the DNA of the fish he catches to determine which rivers they came from, and combing through their stomach contents to find out what they're eating. To Sheehan and other scientists, the key to understanding salmon migration is their insatiable appetite for a small, silvery fish called capelin. It's almost like a herring. It's a very energy-rich, oily fish where they get a tremendous amount of energy and they grow very fast because of it. Sheehan says the ability to find calorie-packed food in the ocean is what makes the life strategy of Atlantic salmon a success. The rivers are only so big and there's only so many resources that you can use. So you can't have very large populations in a river. So what this species has done, it's adapted and it goes out into the ocean where you have this vast area, a lot of resources, where it can now take advantage of all that, grow really fast, grow really big, better ability to pass on its genes and offspring into the future. So it's this interesting combination of the safety, but the habitat restriction in a river, but risky, resource-rich environment of the ocean. So they've really combined the pros and cons of both environments into one life history. Salmon that leave Maine as six-inch smolts can return after two winters at sea as 10-pound adults nearly two and a half feet long, a growth spurt that Sheehan says gives the species a large advantage. By growing fast, you get bigger, you have higher fecundity, so you're able to make more babies, and you also reduce your risk of predation because you're bigger. The bigger you are, the less things are going to eat you when you're in the ocean. Salmon can spend anywhere from one to three winters in the North Atlantic before beginning their mysterious voyage home. Guided by the Earth's magnetic fields, they travel another 2,000 miles, dodging sharks and seals on a single-minded mission to spawn in the rivers where they were hatched. Sometimes they hold up for months in their home estuary, waiting for a mysterious cue that sends them back into fresh water and their upstream habitats. Back on the Narraguegas River in down east Maine, perhaps two salmon born from the 8,000 eggs laid by a spawning female might reach the final barrier on their upstream migration, the dam at Cherryville. In high water, these fish might leap right over the head of the dam, arching majestically through the air. Throughout history, the ability of salmon to leap over obstacles 10 feet or higher in a single bound has left lasting impressions. Roman soldiers more than 2,000 years ago witnessed the spectacle and gave the species a name that's stuck ever since, Samosalar, which means leaper in Latin. For Hazel Stark of Fish Friends, the salmon's stunning ability to migrate to and from the Greenland coast and return to the same spot where they were hatched still leaves her in awe. Yeah, it definitely strikes me as amazing. A tiny species in a great big ocean, able to come back to a specific river. We have a lot of rivers. That's remarkable that they're, that they're able to do that. And the fact that despite all the barriers that they might hit along the way, whether that's a fisherman or a really hot pocket of water or a dam or some other barrier, um, and predators and just disease, there's so many things working against them, yet they're still able to make this giant journey that most humans couldn't even do in a boat. But this amazing feat is overshadowed by the fact that the number of returning salmon throughout the North Atlantic is a fraction of what it once was. Great traditions have been upended, and scientists like Tim Sheehan are searching for answers before it's too late for the species. And so now you have these stressors in the ocean, the temperatures are increasing, the prey base may be changing. 
we've dammed many of our rivers, we've caused many of our populations to go extinct, and you put all those negatives together. My biggest concern is that salmon don't have the capacity to get out of that hole that we've put them in. You've been listening to episode one of the Saving Salmon podcast, The Leaper. In episode two, we'll dig deep into the age-old connection between salmon and people and explore the early causes of the decline of this king of fish. I'm your host, Charlie Schmidt. And I'm your host, Caroline Losnick. Thank you for listening. We're going to leave you with a poem called Spawn Song by Maine poet and author Megan Grumbling. Spawn Song. After youth, we shimmied free of our riverbed black spots and we slipped into shimmering. Our scales met the sea, the sea sounding of gravel and chimes after the river's hum. The river's gift to our smolt selves was a knowing, a scent we held like an unlit light all the way downstream. For some years in the sea, we swelled our shine. Now, lighting the light, the scent, we strain and gleam our leave of the salt, our scales fast and silent against the current, every turn, stone, and snag. We might meet a wall, ladder, net, dam, the breakup of a bridge, a way or an end. Sometimes, oh wait, we've run out of river, or current, or cold. So pray for time, river, and cold enough to race upstream, sweep the sand into nests, and loose young Aelvin to the hum. Soon we may be dappled with another dark. Still we bide our shine, a lure, a light the river both holds and throws. The Saving Salmon podcast is a production of the Atlantic Salmon Federation with generous support from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Theme music is composed by Ben Trout. To learn more and get involved, visit www.asf.ca.